Hey everyone, this is Cabane the Christian. Uh, I hope you've noticed I've gotten a new microphone. That is part of my overall uh, investment and movement towards a higher standard of production on this channel. Uh, we're just getting started on that. There's going to be a lot of new stuff which is coming down the pipeline. But I did want to mention my Patreon. Uh, I've started a new Patreon account. My old Patreon was a per creation model. Uh, I'll be sending a message to my subscribers uh, on that front, telling them how to transition over. Um, but the new Patreon account uh, is a monthly uh, contribution model. So you will choose a fixed amount and contribute that per month. Now, the reason that I'm harping on this a little bit is because for quite a long time, actually, people have encouraged me to get a little more serious with this channel, to invest more time and energy into this channel. Um, and given where I am at my life right now, and we'll be talking about that um, in a video to come when I get into this in more detail, um, I, th I think it's time to actually make a real go of it. Um, but to meet the kind of standard that I intend to meet, and to invest the kind of effort that I would very much like to invest in this channel, uh, in terms of producing um, the quantity and quality of content that I want to produce. Uh, that really does require me to have an active and um, uh, reasonably well uh, running Patreon account. Um, so we'll see where everything goes. Uh, but if you are financially able and you appreciate the content that I produce and would like to see more of it, please do consider making a monthly uh, donation. Uh, and we will be talking about this in the coming week, but I will be releasing premium content for certain patrons who contribute a certain amount. Uh, my pre-existing subscribers who choose not to become premium subscribers, don't worry because you're not going to be losing anything. It's new kinds of content that I'm going to be producing, which are going to fall into that premium category. So don't worry. Uh, some people will be gaining something, but nobody's actually going to be losing anything in terms of the content that comes out of this channel. But again, the link is below. Uh, it's patreon.com slash cabane. Uh, do consider making a monthly contribution. What I want to talk about today, perhaps briefly, perhaps not, is the idea of what I like to call conceptual flexibility, or the mode in which certain concepts are interconnected in the biblical worldview. Now, people like to throw around the word biblical a lot. Everybody and their mother promises to teach you how to think biblically. But I think one of the major problems in these promises is that at the end of the day, when people talk about a biblical worldview, very often what's being spoken of is the uh, propositional content of the theology. So for example, if somebody says, the Bible teaches Jesus is God, it is then thought that to say Jesus is God is identical with being biblical. Well, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. There's more to being biblical than believing what the Bible genuinely teaches. Being biblical doesn't just mean believing what the Bible teaches. It means acquiring the grammar of symbolism that permeates the pages of the scripture. It means acquiring the structure of thought that runs through the whole text from Genesis to Revelation 
and governs the way in which these divine truths are actually articulated. We hear a lot today about neural networks in the brain. You know, our neurons are tied together in specific ways. A certain neuron is associated with another neuron if the two fire together often enough. And this is really what we're going after when we talk about thinking biblically and moving towards thinking biblically. We're talking about firing the right neurons at the right time together. We're talking about tying different concepts together in the right way. Now there's an ontological basis to this idea of tying things together in the right way. And the ontological basis pertains to what we talked about, I believe, the other day, which is that the Logos is an indivisible unity. He has a true infinity of divine perfections, of divine qualities. Nevertheless, he is an indivisible unity because each of these perfections are present in each other of these perfections. To briefly recap the argument that I made for this and the analogy I presented, uh, in a mathematical set, so if you just take uh, the set of all real numbers, okay? Um, take the set of all real numbers, or all positive integers. Uh, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, and, and so on and so forth. Now, each of these numbers is in fact related to every other one of these numbers. What does that mean? Well, it means that one is related to the number two by the relation of plus one. It's an additive relation. One is also related to the number three by the additive relation of plus two, and so on and so forth, and that applies for every single number. Now, it's important to recognize here that the idea that the relationship of one to three and four is less immediate than the relationship of one to two presumes that the ultimate and objectively, you know, uh, foundational mathematical relationship is x plus one. In reality, there are countless mathematical relations which can be described for any given number. So in fact, every number is related to every other number in, with a vast plenitude of threads, with many different modes of relationship. So, so here's, this, here's an example. Um, if we want to use this term direct, because we, we often throw around words without really thinking through what exactly are we signifying by these words? Take the relationship of the number two to three and four. Is the number two closer to the number three or the number four? Now, most people will immediately say it's closer to the number three. And indeed, that would be what most people mean when they speak of closeness. But when we're speaking ontologically, when we're speaking of the intrinsic qualities of these various subjects we're talking about, then I think we have to think it through more carefully because in fact, there is a way in which the number two is far closer to the number four than it is to number three. And that's if the relation, the mode of relation, is that of squaring or to the power of two. There's nothing which makes squaring less direct or immediate than plus one. Uh, it's just a different mode of relation. And so you have this infinite set of numbers, all real positive integers, let's just say. Uh, and it's a real infinity. You, know, you will never reach the last number. And each of these numbers, in view of being what it is, in view of being a mathematical quality or quantity, has a set of intrinsic qualities. In other words, the number two 
is what it is by necessity. Now, there's no set of circumstances in which the number 2 is going to be one less than the number 73. It's just not internally coherent. This is a necessary truth, something which could not be otherwise. And the point that I'm attempting to make here, in this relatively long-winded way, but I hope you get something out of it, the point that I'm attempting to make here is that the Every single number in this set is present in any number we choose. Take the number 7. The number 7, being what it is, has qualities which make it 7. You know, it's uh, the number which is plus 1 plus 6 is number 7. That's intrinsic to 7. 7 would not be 7 if it wasn't true that it was the result of 6 plus one. Well, it has a relation also with number five. It's five plus two. It has a relationship with the number 21. It is 21 divided by three. Now, each of these relations is intrinsic to what makes the number seven the number seven. And what we get to at the end of the day is the reality that for every individual number, the entirety of the mathematical set is implicitly but truly present. In other words, every number, when you get down to the bottom of what is this number intrinsically, irreducibly, what makes it what it is? Well, to answer that question in a comprehensive way, you would have to appeal to every other number. Now, this, I think, is a very profound and useful way of looking at the structure of the creation writ large. Because this relationship where you have an infinite, an infinite plenitude of truly distinct subjects or qualities. You know, the number six is not the number seven. Even though they can't exist without each other, they're not the same thing. We really are speaking two distinct things. This idea of an infinite plenitude of qualities, which nevertheless is indivisibly one, is an attribute of God in the classical theistic tradition. So one, the oneness of God, that is, we must understand it in an expansive and unitive sense, not in a reductive sense. Many people hear of the, the idea of one God, and they think, oh, well, that means it's one less than two gods. But that's a reductive idea of what monotheism would mean. In reality, the one God is one not because he's less than anything, but because he incorporates the genuine properties of everything else that could exist and has ever existed in his own nature. Now, some people will immediately say, well, doesn't that include evil? Now, the response to that would be to say that evil inherently piggybacks off of good. So evil has no intrinsic existence. When you get down to brass tacks, when you ask the question, okay, what is it that makes this thing evil? You'll find that there is a degree of unreality to it. It is a corruption on something which is good. Um, that's a topic for another video. I'm really tempted to give examples and show how that's necessarily true, but I'm not going not gonna to submit to the temptation. Now let's remember that the creation 
exists because it is an imprint of God's own nature. God is infinitely perfect. He is the existent one. Everything that existence means or could mean is present infinitely to the highest degree, perfectly in God. So any other thing which exists, exists only because God extends himself in a creative procession. In other words, he reaches outwards, and by reaching outwards, he constitutes a creation, something which is an imprint or echo of what is intrinsic to him, something which depends at in every moment on his sustenance, uh, something whose every quality bears witness to something about him. This isn't just true of our creation by chance, it's necessarily true. Any creation would be an imprint of God's own nature. Now when we recognize that, and when we really recognize it concretely, I mean, we can say a lot of you know things like the heavens declare the glory of God. Many people say it without thinking through, well, what does this concretely mean? You know, the heavens are still there. You look up at the sky, there's stuff there. What does it mean to say that those declare the glory of God? An interesting question, a question for another day. But what does it mean to say that the creation, that existence itself as we know it in our daily lives, what does it mean to say that this creation is an imprint of the one God who is indivisibly one, of the one God whose every quality coexists necessarily with his every other quality, which, oh, by the way, are infinite? Could that actually tell us something about the nature of the world. And this is where we circle around to the importance of biblical symbolism. Now a symbol at bottom is basically a kind of correspondence. A symbol denotes a relation between the symbol and the thing which is symbolized. So we say, for example, that the sun, S-U-N, the sun in the sky, is a symbol of Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means that the sun reflects and expresses certain qualities which belong ultimately and properly to Christ. And the correspondence between the Son and Christ is communicative. Now, I think this is what makes a symbol among various relations um, something somewhat unique. You know, it sets it apart from other relations. Uh, every relation involves some kind of union or, or whatever between two things. So what is it that makes a symbol uniquely a symbol? Why do we have a different word for it? Well, I think it has to do with the communicative intent of it. Now, Scripture teaches us that the creation exists in and through the divine logos. So at bottom, all creation is thoroughly communicative. So all creation is thoroughly symbolic. But what we're trying to get out of this is that when the sun, S-U-N, corresponds to Christ in various qualities. It is, it gives life to the world. Its constant, its existence is constantly necessary for the very structure of our whole solar system. You know, it disappears, everything just completely is thrown into disharmony. Uh, it gives us heat. It makes things beautiful because it sheds light on them. Light is that which permits everything else to exist qualitatively. And without light, nothing reflects, so it's just nothing in a visual sense. 
And to say that the Son corresponds to Christ in a symbolic way is to say that this is a message that we are supposed to get out of it. As we go through the creation in our lives, every step that we take is meant to be a step towards deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that potential, this path is opened up for us for the very reason that everything is symbolic. Every motion that we take, you know, in any direction we look, uh, we are looking at a very sophisticated and subtle and beautiful language. Now let's remember what we mean when we talk about the indivisible unity of God's divine qualities. It means that every one of his qualities is present in one way or another in every other one of his qualities. Now if the creation is an imprint of God's own existence, and this is, this is something which is intrinsic to the structure of existence, well then this same relation can give us insight on the way in which things in the world relate to other things in the world. And this, I think, is a very important point. And here's how I would phrase it. The distinction between a literal sense and a metaphorical sense is a distinction of degree and not of kind. Now, this sounds like quite a radical claim at first glance uh, to say that literal and metaphor are not two different kinds of speech, but two different uh, degrees of the same kind of speech. Well, that, that sounds quite shocking. Surely to say that the, a rock which we picked up from the ground is a rock is fundamentally a different kind of statement than saying God is a rock or uh, my wife is my rock. Surely these are different statements in qualitatively, not just in degree. But let's remember the way that existence is structured. To say that my wife is my rock, and I'm not married, this is just a, a hypothetical, there's a reason that we select the rock as the symbol. Right? There genuinely is a correspondence between my wife and my relationship with her and a rock. So there's something which unites them, which makes them like one another. And when we, when we think about it, it's a, the, what unites them is stability, right? Uh, it holds a person in place, just as a rock through its weight holds whatever is around or whatever is under it in place. Now, let's not forget that a property, a quality is an activity, it's an operation. Because to say that a bluebird is blue is to say that according to its nature, it is manifesting blue light in relation to the creatures with the capacity to receive that blue light in sight. Moreover, every activity, every operation or energy is a relational activity. It always requires, in order to be internally coherent, the presumption of two distinct subjects. So to say my wife is my rock and that thing on the ground is a rock, both of those refer to a relation of energy, an activity of one subject in relation to another. Now, how exactly can we speak of this as a difference of degree rather than of kind from a literal relation? Well, I think uh, 
it has to do with the unfolding um, kind of fractal structure of the divine processions. Okay, so uh, we say that God has an infinite number of qualities. Well, let's think about how that actually works. God has justice, love, mercy, grace, etc., etc. Now, take any one of those qualities. Let's just take love. God has love. That's a distinctive quality of his perfection. Well, there are an infinite variety of loves. Just love one, love two, love three, love four. You know, we can go on and on. Then just take love three. Well, there are an infinite variety of love threes, of divine procession. There are different kinds of love, and within each of these different kinds of love, there are different rifts. And we can go all the way down. You know, keep going down and down and down, and this relationship is never going to stop multiplying. Or you can go up and up and up, and you'll find that the original quality which we started with is itself a manifestation of a higher order quality. So it just goes all the way up, and it goes all the way down. And so when we speak about analogical predication, and that's really what we're talking about, we're saying my wife is my rock versus that thing on the ground is the rock. Analogical predication... Uh, is analogical because, as I understand things, um, and I'm not telling you to take you know, my word as gospel here, think it through for yourself, uh, but as I, as, as I understand things, because the uh, correspondence between my wife being a rock and that thing on the ground being a rock is a correspondence which involves different levels of that kind of what I would call a fractal hierarchy, and I'm sure there's a, a more uh, precise technical term for what I'm talking about, but unfortunately at the moment I don't actually know it. But at the end of the day, every genuine analogy has to come to some degree of univocity. In other words, it has to come to some degree of a correspondence where they are alike in the same sense. And the reason I say that is because if you never reach a level where you can say, okay, these two things are identical in this respect, well, then you have no basis at all for saying that they are like each other in any way. To speak of two things being a little bit alike is to say that there is a certain way, even if it's just a small part of its existence, there is a certain way in which it is exactly identical to this other thing. Now, let's pan out and look at the bigger picture. What this means ontologically in terms of the creation is that everything is present in everything else. We've just gone through um, the overarching basis for why this is true. We've uh, tried to demonstrate, uh, hopefully not too incoherently, uh, in our language, how this is true in terms of there being degrees of metaphor and symbolism. Uh, and I do want to say on that point, just note how organically languages become highly idiomatic. It's impossible. You cannot have a language which doesn't all the time use allegories and symbols without even us noticing. They become so common we don't even recognize that they're symbolic. You know, speak about the laws of nature. That's a symbol. It's not a law in the univocal sense. You know, laws are passed by the state. You can break them. To speak of laws of nature is to speak of patterns. That is a topic for another day. Um, very important topic, though. But there are symbols in our language like 
lunacy. Well, lunacy comes from Luna. It's the moon. How about jovial? That's Jove. That's Jupiter. There's lots of uh, uh, planetary and celestial language that's been woven throughout the English and many other languages, which I think is very interesting. And I think it actually does bear witness to something that's uh, significant, not just an interesting factoid. Uh, but everything corresponds to everything else. Everything is present in everything else. Just like every number is implicitly present by some particular relation to every other number, so also everything in the creation is present by some kind of relation, by some kind of correspondence to every other thing in the creation. In other words, everything symbolizes God on the one hand, because everything is an imprint of God's own being, his own nature. Every perfection exists perfectly, perfectly and fully in him. As such, everything in the creation, which is striving towards that perfection as its goal, everything in creation symbolizes him because it makes him known in relation to beings who have the capacity to apprehend not only the world, but the world according to its symbolic structure, according to its correspondences. In other words, man, the human family. Uh, we can see the parts in light of the whole and the relations among all of them precisely because we're created in the image of the Logos. The Logos is the whole. Now this vast web of correspondences, I've gone into this for some time because I think that biblical symbolism is not just a, you know, a curious way of articulating theological truth. It's not just an aesthetically pleasing way of talking about God, though it is aesthetically pleasing. But aesthetics, beauty, beauty is the inner quality of goodness. Beauty is an essential aspect of the good. So to say that it is aesthetically pleasing, there's actually something ontologically significant about that, but I won't press that point here point is that the way in which scripture talks about God and creation and man, the kinds of correspondences that it creates in our mind, those correspondences pertain to the actual structure of the cosmos. And that is why studying scripture in the process, as a process, is conducive to growth in wisdom and not just uh, and not just for you know what we get at the end of the day a lot of people they go to the Bible they want to find out what the Bible teaches about X or Y you know find out what the Bible teaches about contraception find out what the Bible teaches about the death penalty etc etc but I think what that goal misses is that God has written the Bible in such a way that in order to get to the end of the road you have to take the journey in a particular way. And when you take the journey in that particular way, it changes you. It makes you think in different ways. It creates new neural networks in your mind. And those links that are created in your mind, you then look at the whole world through the lens of those links. And because scripture bears witness to the truth about God and about the world, you are seeing the world more truly when you look at it through the lens of uh, the scripturally soaked mind, when you look at it according to the uh, interconnectedness that you've learned from the scriptures. Now I want to give a couple of examples here. Um, uh, 
I don't want to say this is going to be a series of videos because, you know, I always say that and it takes forever to actually finish it, but I will make more videos in this vein uh, talking about the kind of stuff that I've talked about here, going in depth in some more examples. But the specific example I think that I want to focus on is the idea of creation and conquest. Now, one of the very interesting things that we find when you know biblical symbolism and when you know the biblical story arc is that, historically speaking, Genesis 1-11 to genuinely seems to be the actual history of the human race. Just in terms, if we only had oral tradition to go on. Because every culture, virtually every culture I should say, has a story of a global flood with many details which specifically match the biblical story in ways that are just not explained by floods happened everywhere. Like a bird being sent off to find land at the end of the flood. Well, not only so, this is true across Genesis 1-11, to for example. Uh, in uh, uh, North America, there is a Native American tradition, and I can find you the specific one if you'd like, that says that in the beginning, uh, God or the gods created woman, and then she was put into a sleep, and from her side, the man was created. Now, it is so obvious how this corresponds to the biblical story. Uh, People will try to appeal to things like missionaries uh, influencing the indigenous tribes. The problem is that when you look at the stories, kind of at, you pan out, you look at them geographically, what you find is that the stories fit into uh, wheels within wheels. In other words, it's a nested hierarchy, which only makes sense if they branch off from each other as peoples kind of spread out over the land. So if in one tribe, the uh, raven at the end of the flood is changed to an otter, and then they split into two tribes, well, both of those tribes are going to have the otter, and they split into four tribes, eight tribes, 16 tribes. Now you have 16 tribes with the otter variant of the flood story, and they are spread all across North America. Now, if they're spread all across North America, it, you cannot explain why they have this correspondence with the biblical story by missionary contact because missionary contact would be independent points of contact because their, their elders are not transmitting this tradition collectively for the most part. Uh, you would have to have missionaries depositing their influence in the same way, misunderstood in the same way across the whole of North America. Now, um, the same is true of the Tower of Babel. And the reason I mention this is because I wanted to make the point that it's not just the biblical history of uh, the early world that is transmitted among the nations of the world. It is a way of thinking. It's a grammar of symbolism. And that grammar of symbolism includes a vast network of correspondences where one thing is associated with another and that with another, and the associations aren't exactly what we would consider intuitive. But when you understand what is connected with what, then you realize that many of these traditions from across the world are much more intimately connected with the biblical story, in other words, the genuine history, than you would have thought at first glance. Just an example concerning the Tower of Babel. Now, uh, in uh, uh, there's actually multiple traditions which speak of a cosmic tree at which all the nations of the world, the whole human family, was gathered. Overnight, there was a great gust of wind, 
uh, or I should just say it's not overnight, the detail of overnight isn't there. Um, but there was a great gust of wind, and then all the languages fell out of the tree because of that gust of wind. Now, what, what does this have to do with the Tower of Babel? Other than the fact that the entire human family was gathered together at one point and the languages were born there. Well, what you would miss if you only had the modern intuition about what corresponds with what in your mind, you would miss the fact that trees are ladders to heaven in uh, this symbolic grammar. A tree is a connecting point which begins underground and has its roots under the earth and it rises up to the heavens and then expands outward in branching in a, a, a network of branching trees. And in those branching trees, birds make their home and they sing. So this is why at altars, you know, where communication with God is what is being um, facilitated, this is why altars, sacred sites, they're built of sacred trees because a tree is a connecting point between heaven and earth. It's a ladder to heaven. This is why, for example, human beings are analogized with trees in many different ways and in many different places. The righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season. Well, just as in the heavens, you have a great cloud at which, within which you have the angels singing praises to God, so also you have this you know, cloud-like formation, except for the color, of leaves in which there are birds singing. You know, I remember one day I was walking to university, my undergraduate, um, and I had been thinking, you know, why did the Israelites um, use the, why did they dress up in trees, you know, using palm trees uh, to celebrate the glory cloud overshadowing them? What exactly is it about trees that makes it such a correspondence? And I remember it had been cold the night before, and so there was ice which covered all of the trees and it was the most amazing thing because what I saw was essentially uh, fixed concrete clouds the same color and they were just dripping water as the birds sang in them and suddenly the correspondence between the cloud and the tree intuitively came into much sharper focus now this is not a knockdown argument for the correspondence if you're not convinced and i'm not even trying to convince you that there is a correspondence objectively what i'm saying is that in antiquity such a correspondence is made and in the bible such a correspondence is made so think for example in the book of revelation uh when the heavens are rolled up well uh the stars are shaken to the ground like fig leaves. So you have a correspondence between the heavens and the leaves on a tree. Now the Tower of Babel is also a ladder to heaven. The tower is not the same thing as the city. The tower is a temple and it's, as most people recognize, a ziggurat. Look at a ziggurat. It is a stepped pyramid which is an artificial holy mountain. And each step of the pyramid signifies one degree closer to the celestial realm. Now that, celest that hierarchy is replicated on the holy sacral level in human hierarchies. And at the top, you have the priest king, who is the point of connection between the gods and the human family. And his role at the top of the human hierarchy is what constitutes him and legitimates him as the mediator between gods and men. Now, this only makes sense if uh, the uh, 
Mesoamerican pyramid or the ziggurat. It only makes sense if this is an artificial holy mountain. In other words, it's a place where you're supposed to ascend into the heavens. It only makes sense if it's a ladder to heaven. Okay, so Genesis, I believe it's chapter 28, Jacob uh, puts his head on the stone. He has a dream. He sees a ladder to heaven, angels ascending and descending upon it. He says, truly, this is the gate of heaven. Well, Babel means gate of God. So the uh, idea of Babel as confusion is a pun, right? Um, but it means literally uh, gate of God. That's what the um, architects of the tower would have thought that they were building the gate of God. So Jacob, he has this experience. He says, truly, this is the gate of heaven. And uh, we're told that the ladder had its top in the heavens, which is a phrase quoted directly uh, to my memory from Genesis chapter 11. Uh, so the Tower of Babel was a ladder to heaven. The tree is a ladder to heaven. Tower of Babel is a site uh, of sacrifice. It's a holy place. It's a place where um, you commune with God or the gods. Um, so also, there are sacred trees. You build altars by sacred trees because that is where you commune with God or the gods. So these two things, which are totally separate in our mind, you know, what the hell does a tower have to do with a tree, are actually intimately tied together um, in the grammar of biblical, and I would say, no Ad Adamic, Noachic symbolism. And when you understand that, you, you can understand much more easily how it is that in the transmission of the story of the Tower of Babel, and we're all descended from, from those who experienced it firsthand, but in the transmission of that story, you would have this specific alteration where a tower becomes a tree. It seems utterly random and potentially even raising questions about whether these are the same story at all if you don't have this in mind. But when you recognize the correspondence, then uh, it becomes much more intelligible. The other example that I want to get to, and I think I made a mention that this is the main one I wanted to talk about, and then I kind of got distracted. The other one I, I want to get to is uh, war and creation. So it is something of a truism of biblical studies that in the ancient Near Eastern world, which surrounded the biblical authors, uh, the narrative of creation by a primordial war among the gods was commonplace. So the most famous example of this would be Enuma Elish. You have a conflict among the, the gods. Uh, they're fighting each other, and in the process, heaven and earth are created. You know, out of the chaos, sometimes out of the remains, but you got so much power flowing and being directed in all these, dire in all these different ways that it produces this byproduct, which is the cosmos. And it is often said that this forms a major point of contrast with the biblical story. And the, the biblical story, well, this is a creation in a peaceful environment, whereas uh, in these other stories, it's a creation by divine warfare. Now, I don't want to entirely dismiss that. After all, there is obviously a difference. But what I do want to suggest is that there is a reason that so many cultures transmitted the story of the creation, which at one point they must have had um, in its genuine fullness. If you're like me and you uh, take uh, historically the early chapters of Genesis, I don't want to start an independent argument on that, but um, at one point they must have known that story. So how is it that they got a story of primordial divine warfare? Well, to begin with, we can notice that some curious correspondences in the biblical text itself between the creation and warfare. 
Take the book of Joshua, for example. Uh, in the book of Joshua, again and again, we're told that Israel, and, and judges especially, actually, I think even more so, uh, that the land had its Sabbath after a conquest or after a battle was completed. And when Israel conquers Canaan, we're told in Joshua chapter 18, that the whole land lay subdued before them. And this word, in fact, the phrase, is a, an allusion to Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, where God says to man, subdue the earth. This is the same word, it means conquer. And I think most um, interestingly, as far as the idea of warfare and creation, going together, is the role that music plays in creation and in warfare. Now, Genesis chapter 1 is often noted for the highly um, rhythmic um, flow that it has. You know, you have repeating patterns. Again, it's very kind of staccatoed if you read it aloud. And the idea of music um, has deep connections with the act of creation. You know, Tolkien recognized this in Silmarillion. Uh, Lewis recognized this in Magician's Nephew. The idea that God created the world by music is based on the idea, if you want to get down um, to the kind of the inner essence of the concept, it's based on the idea that uh, every unique piece of music kind of signifies a distinct rhythm, a unique mode of divine beauty, and that mode of divine beauty uh, is the logos or the nature of every particular creature. Now, the role of the human family is to complete and perfect the creation, and in order to do that, it must do so through language, and language glorified is music. So language glorified is language which is sung out. So you have words, uh, but those words can be articulated in many different musical notes, just as you have an energy or an operation, you have blueness, but that blueness can be articulated, it can be expressed in many different contingent ways. Or you have the love between a husband and wife. The husband loves his wife day to day, but on one day he might give her flowers, on another day he might kiss her, or so on and so forth. The same love can be, can be expressed in many different ways. And so the active expression of the creative logos in our mouths, by our breath, occurs through music. Now, what does this have to do with warfare? Well, warfare is a kind of creation. So what it means for God to have conquered, or for anyone to have conquered a particular land, is that uh, the, this person, the conqueror, has acquired the capacity to alter this particular uh, a swath of territory or property in the fashion that he pleases. This is what ownership means to begin with. If I own this house, it means I can alter the house after the fashion that I please. You might say, well, you can't alter it in any way. Well, that's because there is a distributed ownership. You know, God ultimately is the owner. He ultimately sets the rules. Uh, then you have the state, uh, which is, uh, in a sense, a kind of part owner. It has a stake in it. Uh, and then we are the kind of delegated owners. Now, that's a very comp the way in which that funnels down is complicated. And I don't want to start a controversy here. My point here is that ownership means the capacity to alter a particular set of property according to your will, according to the ideas that you conceive in your mind. And 
conquest writ large is the annexation of a large slice of property by a particular nation. Now this makes more sense if you conceive of nations as families and the royal family is kind of the head family. Um, but this is kind of at bottom what is going on when we talk about conquest. Uh, we're told that God has ownership over the children of Israel. Well, why is that the case? Again and again we hear uh, it is because God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Well, what the, what's the connection here? The connection is that God essentially conquered Israel as a people and conquered them. who They were slaves to Pharaoh. Well, now they're slaves to God, which is, of course, a very different experience. Uh, and he conquers the, uh, Pharaoh by uh, forcing his hand, uh, by uh, forcing the supremacy of his will, thereby vindicating his claim that the buck stops with him, that God ultimately is the one who decides what's going to happen with Israel. So God owns Israel. And he, he owns them uh, through right of conquest. Uh, and right of conquest is a riff on creative sovereignty. What do I mean? Well, conquest gives you the capacity to manage whatever you've conquered in the way that you please. Okay, that's what it means to own the land. You've conquered it means the, the person whom you've conquered it from, they no longer have the right to alter it in the way that they want. They can't plant a farm in this land anymore if you don't want that farm there. If they, do, if they want to plant the farm, you have to lease it out to them or sell it back to them. And so we see that the idea of conquest actually depends on the idea of creative alteration. You know, we take the land and you alter it, you restructure it in a certain way. And so the creation of the world is the basis for God's sovereignty over everything. Because by creating everything and by restructuring it during the six days according to what was in his mind, according to the pattern which exists in the Logos, by doing that, he demonstrates himself to have absolute sovereignty over uh, the creation. He can alter it in the way that he sees fit. What's the basis for that claim? Well, the way everything is, that is his work. So creation gives the basis for divine sovereignty. Conquest gives a person a basis for the acquired sovereignty over something. A God reconquers the world, uh, thus vindicating the sovereignty of his name. What does this have to do with music? Well, we've discussed briefly the connection that music has with creation. Um, let's think just uh, just uh, briefly on the idea of the divine sustenance of the world. So God does not create the world and then kind of step back. It continues to exist for the reason that he actively at every moment upholds it as what it is. Why is a bluebird blue? Well, God is actively keeping it blue. Now, some people would say, well, that's occasionalism. It makes uh, the patterns of nature arbitrary. The reason that that's not the case is that there's a structure to the patterns of nature. It's not random. And note that I said patterns and not laws of nature, because the laws of nature, so-called, are descriptive. They're not prescriptive. The law is a prescription. You have to do this. Uh, the laws of nature are descriptive. They only say what happens given X, Y, and Z 
circumstances. So if we want to articulate that idea in a way that's uh, as metaphysically neutral as possible, which we want to stay before we get to the answer to this question, um, we would call it the patterns of nature. But I think uh, the best analogy would be the music of nature. Because think about what music is. Music is a mathematically ordered pattern of uh, in which different qualities are arranged in relation to each other. This pattern, this order, has a definitive internal structure. You know, it's not arbitrary. You don't pick one note after the other just because, you know, why the hell not? There's a definite uh, order to this structure. You can articulate this in a piece of sheet music, but to say that the laws of nature can exist on their own is as silly as saying that the piano will play itself because you have the sheet music. In order for the music to be realized actively and truly, a person with a will and with power has to concretely instantiate the idea, the internal order which is contained on the sheet music, and he has to instantiate that through, actually, uh, through the piano or the guitar or whatever to produce something which is actually musical. Now the highly structured, uh, mathematically beautiful rhythm of nature is the same way. God is actively sustaining it at every moment in time. He wrote the music to begin with, he created it, he started it, but the creation would disappear without his sustenance. It continues to exist in a regular ordered pattern of activity. There's a development, an arc, not just repeating the same notes again and again and again. It changes, but it changes in an ordered way. In other words, there's a distinct kind of change. And as you move from one kind of change to another kind of change, those actually form their own kind of music. Because the kinds of change have a relation to each other, just like the uh, notes within each you know, period of change has a relation to one another. I hope at least some people uh, can still follow me here. So we've war, warfare, conquest, creation. We've seen that these concepts are tied up with each other. And if music is the instrument by which the world was created, and if it is, after a fashion, the mode in which the world is sustained, it's the music of nature, if that is the way in which sovereignty is implemented, then there must be a correspondence between music and warfare. There, ha there must be threads that connect them together in one way or another. And think about it. There actually are. You don't even have to go to scripture for this. Bring into your mind the image of a revolutionary war battle. What's going on? You have soldiers whose job is to play the drums as people march into battle. Or go back to ancient Rome. People are blowing their trumpets as they go into battle. Now these have practical roles, but that's because uh, practicality, uh, the laws of practicality were invented by the same guy who invented the laws of beauty, the laws of structure to begin with. So those things aren't opposed to one another. You can't say, oh, well, this isn't really symbolically correspondent because the trumpets were meant to do this. You know, Yeah, of course they were meant to do that because the this symbolic language kind of is inbuilt into the human operating system. Or think about in, in if when we go to the Bible, in Numbers chapter 10, you have sacred instruments, uh, trumpets are blown which gather the, Israel, the Israelites together 
into military formation. Uh, in the temple and the tabernacle, the utensils of sacrifice, the knife of sacrifice, is described with certain language that then describes the utensils of music in the Israelite orchestra after the Davidic reform. And we should remember the connection between warfare and sacrifice. Warfare is a kind of sacrificial pattern. Right? So um, in harem warfare, uh, uh, Israel wages war by their blade because the land is devoted, it's consecrated to God. In the book of Chronicles, which discusses the Davidic liturgical reforms, this intimate connection between music, sovereignty, warfare, and creation is hammered home again and again. The genealogies in the first part of the book are centered on the birth of the Levitical musicians. In other words, as Peter Lightheart has suggested, the implication is that the whole history of the human race was designed to reach musicians who could play music beautifully. David is a warrior. David is king. His, he has sovereignty over the land on the grounds that he has conquered the land and brought it to the borders of the Abrahamic promise. David is a musician. He plays his harp to King Saul. He fights the demons by playing that harp. There's a very direct connection between music and warfare. Think about what he says in the Psalms. You train my hand for battle, my fingers for war. That's an odd way of phrasing it. As James Jordan points out, the best way of understanding this is to see it as a reference to his harp. He wages liturgical warfare on the enemy of mankind. It's a connection between warfare and between music. The Israelite orchestra would go out to battle with the children of Israel, as James Jordan discusses. Um, I recommend those who are interested uh, pick up Peter Lightheart's book, um, uh, From Silence to Song, which is on the Davidic liturgical reforms and the symbolic and messianic freight that those liturgical forms uh, carry. Um, it's a really quite a, quite a wonderful book. Um, so I think I'll wrap things up about there. Uh, there's, of course, always more to say. Um, but what I wanted to do really is to uh, introduce those who have not heard it or deepen the understanding of those who have heard of this, heard of this um, uh, to the idea of interconnected concepts uh, in Scripture and to the idea that Scripture has a very different grammar of biblical uh, of, of symbolism than what we're used to. It connects very different things to each other things that are completely disassociated in our minds, Scripture sees as right on top of each other. Uh, but more than that, I wanted to suggest that this isn't just kind of a literary um, feature. You know, this is not just some you know, cool little tidbit. Uh, I wanted to suggest that there's an ontological basis for this, that this kind of threading things together is actually grounded in the structure of creation and in the inner workings of the creation. And so that in acquiring this particular grammar of symbolism that's presented to us in the way that scriptures are written, that we can understand the world more deeply. We can see these same rhythms as we look through history. We can look at the trees around us and actually see what they mean. It is truly an enchanting experience when for the first time you 
are able to intuitively apprehend the way in which some natural object symbolizes something else. At first, you know, it seems very arbitrary, but as you work through things, it gets less and less arbitrary, more and more organic. You begin to see how things actually fit together, and you realize you're seeing the world for the first time, uh, that this is the truth about the world. The world is not devoid of meaning. In fact, it's suffused with meaning, meaning that can, in principle, be interpreted uh, and communicated by the human family. So that is what I have attempted to do in my own poor and imperfect way here. I hope you've enjoyed the video. Uh, uh, if you are not, please do like and subscribe uh, and consider uh, becoming a patron. Thank you very much.